This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 16th of December. Another day, another potential new strain of coronavirus, Norman. Um, in southern England, the UK Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, says that there could be a new strain circulating there that seems to be growing faster than the existing variants. And they're, I don't know, people get worried when we t- start talking about new strains. But how much credence should we give to these claims? Not a lot. You know, one day there might be a strain that's a, a really muscular strain that's causing a lot of problems. Uh, the virus is mutating all the time. There are selection processes that go on. You might remember that when the South Australian outbreak occurred, there was a lot of fuss made about a possibly highly infectious strain. People got panicked about that. And a lot of people poo-pooed that in the viral community. We've really not heard very much about it since. People, they've become very quiet about the South Australian strain. With this one, Look, there could be a strain that's a bit more infectious than others and is dominated. It's much more likely to have been that somebody's arrived from Europe, uh, brought this in, and that's the one that spread through clusters preferentially. And if you look at it, then you, you see that spread there. I mean, interestingly, I was reading yesterday that they estimate that from one medical conference in Boston, the spread of that from, when you look at the genetics of the spread, that cluster has resulted in 330,000 infections. Oh, from a medical conference. That's ironic. From a medical conference, from one super spreading event. So could just imagine if somebody happened to turn up at that super spreading event with a particular mutation of the virus and it spread and you think, oh, well, that's taking over America. It just happens to be the virus that you came to that medical conference with and pecked somebody on the cheek and away you go. They call that the founder effect, don't they? That it's not necessarily that it's it's better fit for spreading or it's more infectious. It's just that it's the one that got there first. Yes. And the founder effect is usually described as uh, somebody arriving, a migrant arriving in, uh, in an isolated population and it, it's spreading from there. So, for example, from memory, there was a founder effect with uh, a metabolic problem with um, bone disease in Quebec, if I remember rightly. There's the founder effect of Huntington's disease in Tasmania, and therefore you've got a lot more Huntington's disease in Tasmania than you otherwise would have, and it's just because somebody got off the boat with that gene and it spread through the population. So, so that's really what you normally call the founding effect, but yeah, you can get it with the virus as well. And that's probably what's happened here in the UK, that it's just somebody with that virus has been in a super spreading event and it's spreading around. And it's not something to keep you up at night, at least not yet. And if you keep on listening to Coronacast, we'll tell you when you've got to stay awake at night. That's right. So does this mutation change the virus's behaviour in any way? Or is, is there any concern about whether it will still be Protect, will still be protected against it by the vaccines that are in development? Well, just talking to um, an Australian researcher who's expert in this field, the British mutation has mutations on top of the virus that was seen, for example, in Melbourne. And so there, there, there are kind of mutations on mutations here. Simplifying what um, is a very complicated message from this researcher, essentially there, it is possible that this variant in Britain could evade vaccines, but there, but he, he doesn't really think that's the case. He thinks that uh, the, vac- the vaccine should be broad enough to be able to cope with it. The question that uh, is raised by this researcher who's informing us on this is that the mutation that's buried in this, in this virus in 
the UK suggests there could be an animal reservoir, which brings you back to the mink. In other words, that maybe there is another jump from animals to humans beyond Wuhan, and that that's what's spreading here. I mean, that's I mean that's a long bow to pull, but that's one of the possibilities here. And of course, it's one of the reasons why they slaughtered these mink in uh, Northern Europe, because they were worried that you actually would get a second, or well, however many, We've no idea how many animal reservoirs have been transferred to humans over the last few months, but this might be another one. And so the worry here is that this could be a jump from an animal reservoir, maybe, maybe not, but uh, it, it just shows that they probably did the right thing by sacrificing these mink. So let's talk about vaccinations a little bit because we've got lots of questions still coming in about that. And Genevieve asks a really important question about clinical trials. So participants in the trials don't know whether they got the vaccine or not because if they're in the placebo arm. So when the vaccination is rolled out, do they get to find out whether they only got a placebo so that they can actually get it if they haven't already had it? It's a very good question. In many placebo trials, when you sign the informed consent, you're told that if the trial is Uh, stopped early because of side effects you'll be told about that if the trial is stopped early because the drug works you will be offered the drug so when they break the trial open you'll be offered the active drug so that you're you you can benefit from the drug if it's shown to be of benefit and it's unclear with the Moderna trial but when once they've termed the Pfizer trial looks as though that the people in the placebo group will be informed that they're in the placebo group and be offered the vaccine. And Emily's asking about the Oxford vaccine. We know that it it looks like it probably does the job pretty well, but there were questions around whether what dosing was most effective and all of those sorts of question marks that were sort of around it. Emily's asking, has it been submitted for approval anywhere? How many doses are we likely to see in Australia? And is March still the timeline? That's the timing that was indicated by the government. Uh, And it's sort of being manufactured here and overseas as well. What's the latest on Oxford? Radio National Breakfast spoke to the head of R&D for Sequiris, which is the vaccine arm of CSL the other day, and they said that they've committed to a very large number of doses of the Oxford vaccine, and they are working out how they're going to do it now that they're no longer producing the UQ vaccine. So they're they're working on how they're going to upscale to deliver on a very much larger number of doses here in Australia of the Oxford vaccine. So that's what they're doing. Still unclear what the right dose is, and that's work that's still to be done. I'm actually not sure where it's been submitted for approval. I've got a feeling that uh, given that they haven't landed on the right dose, I'm just not sure it's, it's been, uh, been put forward for approval. When I did a story on vaccines a couple of weeks ago at 7.30, the TGA told us that they had three vaccines for approval, but the Astra one wasn't one of the three yet. So there was a Janssen vaccine, there was the Pfizer vaccine, there was one other, but I'm not sure that I don't don't think that the Astra vaccine was one of them. So I think that they're holding back a little bit to get their doses properly, but I could be wrong. I'm just not I'm just not absolutely up to the minute with this. But certainly CSL is committed to manufacturing a lot more doses. And a few people have asked variations of this question, which is if someone is exposed to COVID, does giving them the vaccine help stave off disease or is it too late? Or if they've had COVID, is it still safe for them to get a vaccine? It will be safe to have the vaccine. The effectiveness of the vaccine and just how much of an extra boost you get there will be inevitably people who will be immunised who've had COVID and don't know it. And the assumption is that there's nothing dangerous about doing that. You're not 
going to get an overreaction. Certainly, you're not going to test everybody before they have the vaccine. And so this is, I suppose it's a calculated risk, but um, very few people in Australia will have had COVID at all. But if you're looking at immunisation in the UK, where a large number of people have been infected with COVID, many of them who have got no idea they have, a lot of people will be immunised who've already had COVID. And I presume they will not come to any harm. There's no real reason why they should. So the second part of your question is, you know you've been in contact with somebody with COVID, could you get the vaccine and would it make a difference? The answer is you don't know, but that works with other vaccines, works with rabies, it, it works with a few other vaccines, it works with tetanus. So it is possible. And the if you notice that the effect of the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine was a 50% effectiveness with the first dose within um, a week to 10 days, I think it was. So the reality is there's no harm in having the, the immunization because it actually may speed up the uh, antibody response and prevent you getting the disease. So I would imagine that eventually they will be giving this almost like a therapeutic vaccine at some point just to see. So fascinating. And that's all we've got time for on CoronaCast today. But do keep on sending in your questions and comments. Lots coming in. No diminution at all. Go to abc.net.au slash coronacast. Click on ask a question and mention CoronaCast on the way through and we'll pick it up and we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>